0: Amen. Well, good morning. How's everyone rolling? Doing good? Awesome. Well, if you're new here, I'm Mark. I'm one of the pastors here. It's my privilege to open up a God's Word with you this morning. We are in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 7 is where we're at. If you're just joining us, uh, we are calling this series The King and the Kingdom. Uh, and that just is because the central theme of the Gospel of Matthew, the life of Christ, is that the King has come to establish His kingdom and, and to bring in His kingdom citizens. That uh, That is you and me. And so uh, we've been working through this series, and, and and right now we are in the greatest sermon that has ever ever been preached. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And in it, Jesus has just uh, again put forth the gospel that we are desperately to be in need of him. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who... uh, Long for God. Those who are spiritually bankrupt. This is what Jesus has been showing. There, there is a level of righteousness that can only come through Jesus. But as I've been working on this the last couple of weeks, I realized something. Three years ago, right now, we were in our first ever series as a church, and, and that series was uh, called Gospel Centered. And, and in it, we were trying to say, what does it mean to be a gospel-centered church? What does it mean to say, well, what is the gospel? Well, what is it to wrap our lives around it? What is gospel? worship? What is gospel-centered discipleship? What is gospel-centered community and multiplication? Gospel-centered marriage and generosity. Uh, it was nine weeks, but as I studied this week, I realized I left a sermon out of that series. It should have been 10 weeks, because this sermon should have been there, because uh, we talk about this a lot. What does it mean to establish a gospel culture? See, it's one thing, and I think it's easier to be a church that believes the right things has the right doctrinal statement. This is what we believe about Jesus. This is what we believe about heaven and hell. This is what we be- Like, that, that actually is kind of easy. But to live that out, to have a gospel culture where the air that we breathe is the gospel, that is where the rubber meets the road for us. And in this passage, Jesus is going to help us be that kind of community. Uh, we put it this way often here at Redemption Parker. It's okay to not be okay. Jesus will meet you where you're at. So, so we got to be okay with Jesus meeting people where they're at, and Jesus taking people where He's leading them, uh, and, and have an air of grace and mercy. Have a what we'll, we'll call a gospel flinch when someone sins, or someone confesses something, or, or or someone does not line up with with the gospel. Just realizing that we don't flinch away from that. but we lean into that with grace and mercy of God. This is gospel culture. Jesus has been talking to us on the Sermon on the Mount as individuals. This is what it looks like for you to, to pursue righteousness. But, but now, he, he didn't just come to save individuals and bring them to the kingdom. He's come to establish the kingdom, to establish kingdom culture. And so, uh, we, we say often that, that Christianity is meant to be deeply, deeply personal, but never private. That is a false vision of Christianity. It is the vision that our culture would want us to have. You can believe whatever you want, do whatever you want, just keep it to yourself. But that is not the vision that Jesus has. Deeply personal, never private. In fact, he's set us up in such a way and gifted us in such a way that we can't progress in the kingdom apart from each other. The people in your row, the people to your right and left, they are put there for your edification, for your growth, your pursuit of the king and the kingdom, and you cannot do it on your own. And so inevitably, we, he's going to address what does it look like to be a gospel culture. So with that, if you have your Bible, Matthew chapter 7, I'll go ahead and read our passage today, Matthew 7, 1 through 12, and then I will pray for us. I would ask you to listen carefully. This is God's word. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and for the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which of you, one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask Him? So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Jesus said earlier in this sermon, Heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. Let's pray. Father, we come before you once again in the name of your Son and in the power of your Holy Spirit, uh, asking, even as your, this passage has invited us to do so, for you to do immeasurably more in us and through us than we could think or imagine. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would anoint this time for an edification for each person here. Anoint individual words and phrases and points that we might take and behold and that you might use to uh, remove logs from our eyes, that you might use to help us to see and savor Jesus better. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, judge not that you be not judged. One commentator I read this week said that is the most well-known verse in the Bible. (laughs) Judge not. I mean, after all, Jesus said it, judge not. He did say it, and we'll deal with that judge not. Our cultural moment loves this because we live in a cultural moment that says you should never make any moral judgments on on anyone else. And so, judge not. That's what Jesus said. Well, we'll see what he meant by that. Did he really mean that you should never, uh, you must always, as our culture would say, you must not, not not judge them. In fact, you must embrace them. It's not enough to just not look down. You must, even when they, you disagree with the, their thinking or, or lifestyle, you, you must in, embrace them. That's how you are to love them. But the Bible never had that view of love. Imagine if that was what was necessary, that we would think the same, same, same thoughts in, in order for us to love one another. That's how we, we relate, but that's not how God relates to us. And praise God for that. While we were enemies, God loved us. It wasn't that God said, Mark, uh, you're, you're just on the same page with me. I'm going to love you now. No, it was that, Mark, you, you had uh, uh, your whole will bent against my will. Your, your thoughts, your decisions, your morals, everything was against me, and yet I can still love you. There's a a deeper vision for love in the Bible, a deeper vision for mercy and grace. And so we know that because Jesus left his throne in glory and came down. and, And while we were his enemies, he loved us and went to the cross, not because he agreed with us. He disagreed with us. He disagreed with our actions. He disagreed with all that. And yet he was still able to love. But our culture is kind of schizophrenic in this moment right now. On the one hand, we say you must never judge. You must never pronounce a moral judgment over someone. Uh, in fact, you just have to affirm them. But on the other hand, we also live in an internet age. The age where uh, the, the most scathing, biting, harshest criticism uh, can be lobbied against you in a moment. Stuff what we would never say to each other. And it's just kind of this cultural confusion moment. So how are we to deal with this idea of judgment? Notice, maybe you didn't notice because the first one sticks out so brightly. There are actually five kinds of of judgment in this passage. Four of which are good. One of which Jesus wants to root out of us. There's five kinds of judgment. It it reminds me of uh, that story a couple years ago in in New York City at Planet Fitness. you know their their slogan? Anyone know Planet Fitness slogan? No one? No one's got a membership? I'm judging you right now. (laughs) It's a judgment-free zone. It's it's big on their wall. This is a judgment-free zone. So New York City, guy goes to Planet Fitness and gets ready to work out. But before he gets on the the equipment, he takes off all of his clothes. (laughs) starts working out. They arrest him. As they're dragging him out, he's like, I thought this was a judgment-free zone. Like that, that's what he said. Like that's, what, that's what our culture thinks. Man, just judge not. Well, there's five kinds of judgment in this passage that we're going to look at, uh, and uh, we'll, we'll see. How, how would Jesus is using this passage to help us establish a gospel culture in our midst? He starts with verse one, judge not that you be not judged. So our culture is right, and they are wrong when they, when they quote this. They are right in the sense that Jesus is blasting a kind of judgment, what I'll call self-righteous critical judgmentalism. Self-righteous, critical judgmentalism. Jesus has no patience for this kind of judgment. Okay, so let me give you an illustration. We've, we've all been there, right? We've all been on both sides of the equation. So we've all sat in the seat of being judged, right? You've been there. Your parents have, have looked down on you and said, you're an idiot, why do you do that? What's wrong with you? You, you felt judged by maybe your spouse you know, why don't you lead our family spiritually? Or, or why don't you uh, submit and, and just follow my leadership? We've, we've been judged by friends. You know, we, we've, we've been in the circle where other people are judging other people. As she shouldn't wear that dress. And you're thinking, oh, that's because you can't wear that dress. <laughs> like, we, we've all felt, we, we've all spent time in this chair with strangers. On the internet, or or loose acquaintances on social media, just putting us on blast. Like we've all been in this chair, where, where people have looked down on us and they've pronounced a judgment on us, and, and and we don't like it. No one likes it. At the same time, we all stand in the stand in judgment of people. We've all uh, very quickly said, man, I'm better uh, with a kind of hard attitude that I'm better than you, you're wrong. And so to our children, we say, well, why don't you get your act together? What's wrong with you? Why are you like this? Again, to our spouses, we we uh, pronounce judgment over them. Like you know, he's an idiot, and like, or you always do this, or you never do that. In real, like, exclusive terms, which isn't ever true, right? I mean, he's not always an idiot. He sleeps sometimes, <laughs> so that's not possible for him to always be an idiot. We we've we've judged our coworkers. You know, this week you've maybe felt or said or said to other people. and I work with a bunch of idiots. I don't, by the way, just, just to be clear. I'm not, that's not my personal one right here. But we've been that. We, we've been judgmental in this place. You ever been part of a prayer circle judgment circle? You know, we just need to pray for Sally. You know, she's kind of sleeping around, and I just feel it grieves the Lord's heart. And then she said this, and she did that. Oh, we're out of time. Well, I'm glad you know that. Just pray for her. It's kind of a judgment in a, in a prayer circle. And it's crazy that, that, that we, we stand here and judge. It's crazy that, that we do that because there's a, couple, there's a couple problems with this. With this first kind of judgment, judgmental criticism, nobody wins, right? Like no one sits in the chair being judged and it's just like, man, just pour it on. Yeah, come on. Give me some more. I love when you're so critical toward me. It just makes me love you more. I'm going to love Jesus. Yeah, tell me how. Oh, yeah, no, that doesn't work. It always drives a wedge in, in the relationship. And so often, because this is so natural to the wickedness of our hearts, and it's so lodged in us, it's hard to get out. It just comes out most easily to the people we love most, right? But like you can say the most critical, harsh things to your, your kids and your, your, your spouse that you would never say to acquaintances or friends. I mean, I've felt this as I studied this passage. I had to sit down with my girls once again and just be like, hey, uh, I'm just personally convicted because I am so quick to be judgmental of you and critical, and I'm sorry. You know, it's just so natural. What is it in us that feels good when we judge other people? In some sense, it makes us seem that we're better than them. And so we judge people that are at a lower social status. Like, well, what's wrong with these people at Joshua Station? Why don't they just get a job? I mean, they probably were doing drugs, so that's their fault. So well, what's wrong with it? So we judge them. We put ourselves in a position of superiority. Or maybe it's from bottom up, like, you know what the problem with our, our country is? It's the rich people, or it's the people in power. If I was in their position, I wouldn't spend money this way. I wouldn't do this. and we, we just, We're always trying to make ourselves look better. So the first problem is it doesn't work. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't achieve anything good. It just drives a wedge between us and the people, and it drives a wedge between us and God, which leads to the second problem, which is actually worse second problem with self-righteous critical judgmentalism is Jesus hates it. You want to get Jesus fired up? You look at his words of condemnation, of woe to the Pharisees and the scribes who thought they were better than everyone else. He has no patience for it. He hates any self-righteousness because it undermines his mission, his gospel. He's like, you're really going to be judgmental in this moment? You're really going to think you're better than anyone in this world? No, you were wicked in in your sin and I have left my throne in glory to die for you and to purchase you and give you my righteousness and you're going to stand on a, a, a block of your righteousness? It doesn't work. He hates it. So Jesus has absolutely no tolerance for a self-righteous, critical kind of judgmentalism, especially, especially in his people. He, he knows it's prevalent, and he hates it. Now, there is a stereotype in our culture, earned or not, there, there, there's some truth to it, that, that some of the most judgmental people in the world are in this room. Now, again, I don't think it's all true, but some of it's true. As a professor said to me uh, in, in college, I remember him saying, you know, the thing with stereotypes is uh, they, they become stereotypes for a reason. It is an offense to the cross of Christ for us to gather here and sing these songs and come to this table every week and be reminded of Christ's broken body and shed blood and then go out into this world and earn a reputation that totally denies that. Augustine, he put it this way when he was asked about Christianity. He says, so if you ask me in regard to the precepts of the Christian religion, I will answer first, second, and third, humility. Humility. We must be a people marked by deep, deep humility. So the first kind of judgmentalism, the bad judgment, is the judgmentalism, the critical spirit well, he moves on though to a second kind of judgment, verse two, for with the judgment you pronounce, with you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So, so this is uh, on the one hand, the most critical judgmental people invite criticism and judgment on themselves. But what I think what he's getting at is the judgment of God here. You say, well, no, Mark, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I don't have to worry about the judgment of God. I'm good. No, you don't have to worry about the eternal judgment on the last day. You're right. But there are two other kinds of judgments that you should be very concerned about. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and 2 Corinthians 5, Paul talks about the judgment scene of Christ, the judgment of rewards, that everything in our life will be judged. Every careless word will be judged. Every good act will be judged. And and some will receive a, a, a blessing into the eternity, and others will, well, Paul will say, will barely get in. And he'll say, they will suffer loss. Oh, there is a judgment of God, and it is a right judgment. But there's a third kind of judgment of God, that whenever we sin, because God loves you and loves me, Hebrews chapter 12 tells us, as a good father, he disciplines those he loves. So when we sin, we are inviting the discipline of God into our lives. And so, Jesus is warning us about that. Uh, With the measure you use, it will be measured against you. He's trying to root this out of us. Well, let's go to the third kind. For that, I'll drop down to verse 6. He says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Dogs and pigs, that is not a compliment. And this is also, by context, why we know in in verse 1, Jesus does not mean that you can never make a moral judgment. He's calling people dogs and pigs. In verse 15, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So, So he's not saying never make a judgment. In fact, in this kind of judgment, he's calling us to a spiritual discernment that you should be a good judge. And, and when he talks about dogs and pigs and pearls before pigs, well, what is he talking about there? Well, he, Matthew gives us a clue later in Matthew chapter 13. The only other time he uses the word pearl. So the kingdom of heaven is like a pearl. When a merchant found it, he sold everything to buy that pearl. The pearl is the, the good news of the gospel. I think what Jesus is getting at here is we, we must exercise a kind of level of spiritual discernment. We don't just throw the things of God out to everyone all the time. Uh, so put it this way, we must, positively, we must honor the pace of God in people's lives. We must honor the pace of God in people's lives. Like, uh, so if you go and you share the gospel and you only get mockery back, you only get uh, abuse of the things of God, Jesus isn't saying just keep pressing on, keep just shoving the gospel down their throat. No, you pray for them. You continue to love them. You continue to pray for opportunities to maybe show them tangibly how the gospel is. But you don't just press it and press it and press it. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus will send the disciples out and he'll say, preach the gospel. But if the town rejects you, then take your sandals, shake off the dust and move on. There's other people that need the gospel. Don't just keep giving it to the pigs and the dogs. And so there's a spiritual discernment that is needed. Discernment is not easy though. That that takes a knowing of the Word of God. That takes wisdom from the Spirit. When to speak, when to not speak. And so I think that's why Jesus returns to the idea of prayer. Ask and it will be given to you. This is like the book of James. James says, if anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously. And so Jesus isn't just saying, oh, I forgot something about prayer. No, he's saying, look, you need to depend on God in this way. Well, there's So that's the third kind. The third and fourth kinds of judgment, I think, is what is the heart of this passage. What Jesus would have for us as far as establishing the kingdom. Verse three. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? You should read some humor into this. This is a ridiculous picture. You got a little tiny speck in your eye. Well, your log eye, like this is... This is ridiculous how different, different this is. It says, um, But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye. When there is a log in your eye. You hypocrites. First, which implies there's a second. First, take the log out of your own eye. This is a kind of self-judgment. Self-assessment. Now, sometimes when you read this or have heard other people preach, maybe the log is an unnamed sin. Maybe your log's different. Maybe it's a a greed or lust or or whatever. I don't think it's an unnamed sin. I think it's very clear what the log is. I think the log is so obvious in this passage that all of us have it. It is the log of self-righteousness. You, you cannot remove the speck of your bro, out of your brother's eye with a giant log of superiority and self-righteousness standing over uh, uh, the other person. We must root out the log out of our own eyes. So how do we do that? I think you first just have to assume. You have to assume that this applies to you. That there are moments, there are maybe people, maybe races of people, uh, people that vote differently than you. Maybe uh, people in your family, people in your church, people like uh, at every level that just so naturally and easily you look down on. Jesus says, that's a log. You have to get rid of that log. You have to root that out. I don't know who it is for you, but as you assess and you realize, man, you know what? I am kind of critical of this person or that person or these people or those people. Uh, Jesus wants to first uh, do a work in your heart. When you sense this, this kind of judgmental spirit rising up in you, it's because Jesus wants to do that work in you first and foremost to remove the log. There is no place for self righteousness in the kingdom of God, He has no, no patience for that. So there, we assess. We, we assume that we have it. We assess and then we acknowledge. We, we, we go to our, our wife or we go to our kids. We go to people and just say, you know what? I've had a critical judgmental spirit about you. And I just want to confess that, acknowledge it and say, I'm sorry. And we take it to God and say, God, you, you, you died for me. You love me enough to, to not send your judgment on me, but to give me grace and mercy. And so I want to be that kind of person. And then... After that, we get to the final and the fifth kind of judgment. And it's only one half of one verse. I think the, the proportions matter here. I, I think we're so so tempted to do this wrong. So, so, so we, we, we botch this up so much that Jesus spends most of his time saying, Hey, do this right. Do this right. Do this right. He finally comes to the point. He says second half of verse 5 it says you hypocrite first take the log out of your own eye and then then you will see clearly why to take the speck out of your brother's eye so Jesus doesn't deny that the speck has to be removed I mean in this time there are no mirrors so if you get a speck in your eye you are actually dependent on other people to help you out you can't look in the mirror and try to get that out you you need help in that moment But how are we to how are we to go about that kind of help? I think verse twelve again. Well, this is why it's so important to read things in context, because a lot of these verses get ripped out of context and applied in ways that Jesus didn't mean them to. Verse twelve. So whatever you do, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. This is in the context of judgment. So let me ask you, how would you like to be judged? I know your first answer, not. I would like to be judged not. Thank you. I like verse one. But think about this for a moment. Jesus recognizes that there are genuine specks. They're painful. They blur our vision. We need help. And if you're a genuine disciple of Jesus, you know you want to progress in the kingdom. You want to move on. And so that you need other people. You need people to come and remove the speck. So how do you want to be judged? I know how I want to be judged. I want to be judged by people that know me and that I know. That love me and that care for me. That they know the context of my life. They know where I've been through, where I'm coming. That They know that God is at work in my life. I want to be judged by people that are patient. That for the vast majority of the time just keep their mouth shut and trust and pray that God is at work. And, and I want people that are gentle. If you have a, a, a painful speck in your eye and your eye, your eye is watering and, and someone comes with you and, you're like, let me help you out with that, and they've got a, a screwdriver and a hammer, you're like, no, 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 thank you. Just, just stay back. Even if they come to you with a tweezers, you're like, no, you're not putting tweezers in my eye. What do you want in that moment? You want someone that comes with a tissue says, let me help you out with gentleness. This is the heart of, of what Jesus, this is how we establish a gospel culture that knows us, that loves us, that isn't superior to us, but, but cares enough and says, let me help you. And, and when you get that kind of loving judgment, you don't feel, that doesn't drive a wedge, that drives you together. You feel grateful, that pushes you toward God. I hope you have people like that in your life. I hope some of them are in this room. It's hard to get those kind of relationships. So how do we become those kind of people? I I think we we have to just uh, develop develop that heart of humility first and foremost. That comes from just fixing our eyes on who Jesus is and what he did for us and what we deserved and what we get in, in the kingdom and just humble us. So we need to be a humble people, but we need to be a people willing to be known and to know people. Like we can't do the American Christianity thing where we're just on the surface and we check the box and we never make progress. We've we got to be known and we've got to know people. You've got to make that a priority in your life. And so we, we try to set up just some very loose structures to help uh, catalyze that, that here. So whether it's here at Redemption Parker or, or some of the other great churches in our city, you, you need to just commit to them. I'm going to love these people. I'm going to serve these people. I'm going to be a member with these people. I'm going to be all in with these people. Again, now I'm not saying here, but, but wherever it is, if you're a follower of Christ, you've got to be all in. You've got to be all in. Secondly, we would invite you to be part of one of our gospel communities. Again, this isn't a place where you're going to necessarily start removing specks out of each other's eyes, but it's a a place where it can start to provide the context where you get to know each other and you go out for coffee, you get to know each other, you get to know each other enough to love each other well. And then if you want more than that, we, we have something called core groups, these discipleship groups where it's two or three people. You can talk to Sandy Dugas or Brad Dugas who kind of helps uh, unleash those where you can just get in these very intentional kind of relationships where you can help each other on the way. That's the vision. I want to just close by, by looking at another way this is lived out in the New Testament. In the book to the 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing to a church that just had a hard time with this. They didn't know how to judge rightly. They judged wrongly. They didn't know how to deal with sin in their midst. And they called it grace. And in every way, they got the judgment thing wrong. They were critical and self-righteous. And they allowed blatant sin in their midst. They didn't know how to deal with it. And so Paul writes this letter to help them deal with it. And he points to humility. He points to love. And in in 1 Corinthians 13, we know it as the love passage. And it's too bad that weddings have hijacked this passage. Because this was a real word from the Son of God, from God to this church and to us. In a church that had a hard time embracing a gospel culture, just reminding them what this looks like. So we know it. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or it's rude. We, we know that. But let me just, for context, help us cast vision for us at Redemption Parker. So instead of saying love, I'm going to put our name in it. To, let's just read it. So, Redemption Parker is patient. Redemption Parker is kind. Our church does not envy or boast. Our church is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Our church is not irritable and resentful. Uh, It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Our church bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Jesus said, you, plural, are a city on a hill, a light for the world. This is what it would look like to be salt and light in our culture. If we were so known for our love, our patience, our mercy, and our grace, that would transform this city. To that end, let me pray for us. So Father, we thank you for your word to us. The reminder of your good desires for us. Lord, we have no righteousness of our own. And so every time we exercise a self-righteous spirit, you hate it. And you died for it. You bled for it. Thank you, Jesus, that in spite of that, you still loved us enough to come and die for us. Lord, I pray for for each of us here. We, We have logs in our eyes. Lord, help show us those logs this week and then help us acknowledge them, confess and repent from those as we walk with you and with one another. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.